Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Ren Eisenberg, who is a principal software architect at the CyberArk, and he's also an AWS serverless hero as well. And he runs a blog at rentthebuilder.cloud, where he shares a lot of his learnings uh, from building service applications at the CyberArk. Hey, Ren, good to share, have you on the show. Hi, uh, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I've been reading quite a few of your blog posts in the past, uh, so it's, uh, it's good to finally kind of meet you, uh, well, virtually at okay. least. Uh, um, so yeah. CyberArk is, uh, is, uh, is, you know, it's, it's, it's a large company that's in the um, cybersecurity space. I uh, did some consulting work with them a while back, and I know they've, um, I think they started with uh, some serverless framework stuff, and then they moved to CDK, and sounds like they've been quite enjoying CDK. So I've got some questions about that. Um, yeah. Before we get into the CDK and testing and stuff like that, um, do, do you want to uh, spend a moment and two just uh, you know, explaining to the um, to, to the audience uh, who you are, what you do, and uh, you know what does uh, CyberArk do? Okay, so. Um... I'm a principal software architect, like you've mentioned, at the Platform Engineering Group. And my job is basically to enable other te other teams at Savark to do serverless properly, uh, to reduce the cognitive load and help them build SaaS applications. That's like the, in a nutshell, but uh, there's plenty more of that, uh, to be honest. Um, CyberArk, uh, CyberArk was founded in 1999, and we have other 2,000 and 800 employees, 8,000 plus customers. And we started back in the day uh, with uh, uh, on-premise solutions on the domain of privileged access management, on-premise solutions, like I said. And we've made, the, we've made the change in recent years into identity security domain, and we've become a SaaS provider. And that's pretty much uh, when the platform engineering started to really uh, develop its hardware because um, we understood that it's really hard basically to build uh, a SaaS application. Um, when our first team teams they started to build uh, their their SaaS applications, they realized that they need to solve many challenges. They don't really have to do anything with the business domain, right? They need to know how to uh, de deploy to the cloud, what how to build their CI/CD pipeline, um, how to do observability, how to do testing, tenant isolations, many many complex uh, issues that are not really related to the business domain. And they solved the issues. And like I said, we had multiple teams doing it at the same time. So you'd expect that there'd be different solutions. Uh, in some cases, even completely different tech stacks. So uh, that's not ideal I, uh, for the organization as a whole. And if I need to take a look at uh, perspective of the, uh, different personas, at the organization, for the developers, there was no unified developer experience of how to approach SaaS, because some some services, they chose serverless, some chose Kubernetes, some Python, some Java. And for the SREs, since there was no unified observability solution, they needed to learn multiple observability solutions, right? Each product had its own solution. And from the customer experience, uh, there was no unified experience for the uh, for all the products, right? There was no unified tenant onboarding experience, no uh, even unified UI where you can jump around between applications. So that's why we started the platform engineering group to basically provide a unified experience for all these personas. 
and again, reduce the cognitive load and help them focus on, on the business itself. That's the long story. Yeah, so platform engineering is quite interesting because it's um, been uh, quite a big, uh, I guess, buzzword. There's been a lot of debate about uh, and what does it mean and uh, how do you define what goes into the platform versus uh, uh, not. Um, and also I've seen some mistakes other companies have made around the platform engineering, whereby the platform team kind of just builds in a silo and uh, sometimes they build things that you know, the application developers don't actually want to use yeah, uh, or create um, uh, frictions in the processes because they don't understand what is actual requirement from the uh, application uh, feature team. How 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 does the CyberArk structure the platform team in terms of uh, you know, where does the, the platform start and where it ends? And how do you make sure that mm -hmm. uh, you know the tooling that you're building actually, uh, actually matches what the application developers want? How do you get that feedback loop? Okay, uh, that's a lot of questions. Uh, okay, so we have, I think we do it a bit differently at Subarc because we have both internal customers and external customers. The internal are the development teams, the SREs, like I've mentioned, uh, even the sales team for because they use our tenant management service. And the external customers are basically the paying customers of Cyberarc, right? The, we have external services like shared services for authentication, uh, audit services, even the UI itself and the login mechanism, that's a shared service, so to speak. So it has its challenges. For the external services, we get the requirements for the product teams and they need to gather the requirements from all the services and to understand what's the, all our customers, the external customers that they require. For the internal customers, that's more of a challenge to be honest. Um, usually, I mean, back when it started, it wasn't a silo. I think uh, our managers did an amazing job to realize that you can't really develop in a silo. So very quickly, uh, part of the platform genetic team, uh, we split into like uh, another, another minor group and they built a new serverless service on top of the platform. So we got a short feedback loop, right? We got constant feedback on what we're doing and how our actual services are going to build that. Now, we started the platform group with the idea of using serverless services and CDK and Python. That's like the tech stack. And all the new services basically, well, now we're the golden path. So every new service starts like that, serverless first, unless they have a good reason not to use Python or serverless. It depends on their requirements. But back then, we needed to prove ourselves, right? So feedback loop all the time, like uh, you publish a new SDK, you get feedback, even during the requirement stage. Uh, I remember that when we started to build even the uh, SDKs for logging and observability, we needed to get in the correlation IDs, things like that. We need to get, we, I actually asked, uh, we have a forum of, of architects, each architect from the different product, and we ask for feedback, hey, this is the our idea of requirements that we understand let us know if we're missing something and they added more requirements and they even changed my design at some point and made it better once we implemented again we asked people hey um here's the is the new sdk we actually advocate uh where we see ourselves as open source like internal open source so we have uh release a manage uh, release version um release uh, release notes per version and github pages where we explain how to use the sdks and things like that so 
we we tell them, hey, there's a new version. Let us know what's what you think about it. What can we do better? And they can even contribute code um, to make fixes or changes. So we're not a bottleneck at some point. Uh, okay, that's yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That kind of like an internal source model uh, with like a custom SDK. That's very similar to what we actually did, what uh, what I did in my previous company at the Zone, where we had similar thing. We have a platform team. Uh, we um, know that we build a lot of the sort of common tooling. Um, that's actually where I did the whole um, the, the first version of uh, of uh, Lambda Power Tools, which uh, I think Haito uh, really liked that idea and actually took that and uh, uh, developed the uh, um, the AWS uh, Lambda Power Tools uh, from uh, from based on that idea of having like a common set of utility tools that uh, you use. And I can see from your blog that uh, you've uh, written about that a few times, uh, how to use the Lambda Power Tools uh, in Python to do things like uh, item potency and error handling and things like that. Um, I noticed that you've got a session coming up at reInvent with actually uh, with Haito, um, yeah. uh, OPN 305. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because uh, that sounds like quite interesting, the session. Yeah. Uh, so... The title is the Pragmatic Serverless Python Developer. So it's very specific for Python and serverless. The idea is to show you a very opinionated version of how you can build serverless uh, a serverless service, like a proper, we're actually building a proper service with a lot of code. It has a synchronous part, an API gateway, and lambdas, and a database, and, and also a streaming part. And we're showing you how to build it, how to all um, across different pillars, right? You have project structure, you have how to write your handler, how to write your CI/CD, um, how to write your domain code, your integration layer, how to do testing. Basically, all the things that you need to do to run to to write a proper uh, a service, uh, including item potency, logging, observability, things like that. So we're going to use Power Tools a lot, but yeah, it basically should help you to start a serverless service. We provide the GitHub repository, and we also provide the template, uh, which we used. Uh, it's uh, it's a template that I created on my on my GitHub. It's called the AWS Lambda Handler Cookbook, where you can basically start a new serverless service in a click with all the best practices and CI/CD pipeline and all the things that I've mentioned. But it's a skeleton. It's not like a full blown service. Yeah, I I wish AWS that would do more opinionated um sort of content like this because uh, one of the things that uh, I think I well I struggle but also I'm sure I'm sure lots of people uh, lots of other people struggle as well is just that the sheer amount of content you get from AWS but none of it are opinionated enough so that uh, there's a lot yeah. of uh, choices to choose from but you're not really sure yeah. which one you should you should choose exactly. and how to combine them whereas uh, like an so, opinionated uh, sort of uh, view just give you hey here's how you do everything uh, i think that's actually that, that, that's great and that's what a lot of people are looking for yeah i agree instead of telling you hey you should do tenant isolation you should do observability or things like that we actually show you hey this is how it works this is how we can get it done yeah, like the try and test the try and test the approach that uh, that's been used within other companies. Uh, I think that's always good to see. Um, so that's OPN three hundred five session for anyone who's uh, looking for it, and you'll find um, a link to the reinvent session catalog in the description below, so you can look for the session and uh, and and yeah, and go and see Haito and uh, and Rand talk about uh, building server applications uh, in Python using the Python power tools. Um, 
So you mentioned testing there. Uh, certainly, that's uh, something that's something that I'm very interested in. I've you know, th- I've done a whole course on that, and uh, something that I talk about a lot. I'm really curious about uh, your approach towards uh, testing for your server applications. I imagine you have, uh, say, you know, a lot of Lambda functions, but uh, do you also do things like uh, using direct integrations, um, you know, from API Gateway or AppSync or EventBridge? How do you tackle those kind of problems, uh, you know, when it comes to testing? Yeah, yeah, uh, we, we are, yeah, like, like, yeah. We're gonna talk about it also in the session. So, um, okay, so we use CDK, but but to be honest, it doesn't doesn't really matter. But in the end, we use CDK, so we we have some extra special CDK specific tests. I know you're not a big fan of those, but but I, I'm promising you that I have a good reason, and they're very very uh, accurate. So we're gonna get there. Um, so the idea for me as a developer is that I don't want to leave the IDE. I, I want to work in the IDE, do everything in the IDE. I want fast, repeatable tests, and I want to have as much as confidence that my code is going to run on the cloud the same way that it runs on my IDE. And the way I can achieve um, you know, to run my Lambda function in the IDE is very simple. I have several layers like a testing pyramid the names might be different between companies it's a different definition but i think the ideas are the same so i have unit tests which everybody has uh, for me since i use pydentic for schema validation and input validation things like that the unit tests are usually specifically they cover a lot of schema validations because i i we usually write like a very complex validations. We really add like custom validators and more complicated um, schemas. So it's important to have those tested to make sure that you're covered. And then you can also test uh, very specific uh, layers like uh, models, very specific models, very specific functions that you want to mock, make sure that input A goes in, input out, input B goes out, output uh, B goes, uh, goes out. So this is very specific. Then you have the integration layer, which is basically most of the tests are going to be there. The integration are run post-deployment. And why is that? Because I want to use AWS resources. I want to use real resources. Our developers usually, we all use the same account, but we have different stacks. So your stack might have a prefix per developer. So we can all work on the same service and have like our own virtual environment, like our own stack and virtual service, whatever. Uh, we we use our own resources at the same account. So the way we do it is we generate the event data that I want to test, like the input that I want to test for my Lambda function. It can be behind an SQS or it can be behind an API gateway or whatever. And I call, I use PyTest, I call the function and in the E and I can debug it and I can choose whenever I have a, a call to AWS API, I can choose whether to mock it or not. So the happy path would just use real services with real responses and I can really debug it properly. And then you have the edge cases. I want to see that if I fail to put the item into DynamoDB, I want to see that my, I, I can catch the exception properly and my handler returns the internal server error, whatever I want to return. 
So uh, that's where I use mocks. I don't like to use uh, Moto, if you're familiar with it. Um, I use it only in very specific cases where I really it's really hard to generate the use case that I'm trying to go for. For example, I'm going to use an API for uh, list organization. I want to check. I want to list all the accounts there, and I want to have an organization with two thousand accounts. That's really hard to to do like a real API call, right? So that's that's where Moto is really good, and that's the only use case that I, I'd use it because we did found some bugs where Moto didn't replicate the API call properly, like 100%, it wasn't the same response that you're going to get from the service. And if you use Moto, then you can't really use, if you use Moto with one service, you can't really use the other services uh, with Boto. It really, it kind of encapsulates everything and everything's going to get mocked, which is not what I'm going for. Um, so that's from the integration side of things. Uh, does it make sense? Yeah, it's actually exactly what I do. Uh, the you know, you know the, the the approach you're talking about is exactly what I do. Uh, what I nowadays are called remote code testing, so that uh, you execute uh, mm -hmm. you execute your code locally, uh, but you're talking to the remote services like the you know DynamDB and things like that. Except for the sort of um, the the failure paths or things that are really difficult to hit the real yeah. thing, uh, and uh, I'll use mocks for those. And like I said, I'll have unit tests for my uh, domain logic. Um, and then uh, I guess, you know, we will have end-to-end tests as well. Once the whole thing is deployed, you know, you test the whole thing end-to-end -end by calling API gateway or whatever is your, um, your, your, the entry point for your service. And I guess you've got the same thing as well, right? Yeah, I see we're, we're synced, but uh, wait a second, we're going to get out of sync in a second when I talk about CDK tests. Um, yeah, it makes total sense for, for the async part in end-to-end. Um, I think the key is to trigger the entire event from start to end, and then it can get tricky because it really depends whether your async part has any side effects that you can really validate. And if not, uh, we've had one approach, and we did only on the test test accounts, not in production, where you can deploy if you if you send an event bridge uh, message or SNS message at the end of the flow. You can create a tester uh, listener on the SNS, like an SQS that will listen and trigger a Lambda. And that Lambda will, will write to a download table or an SQS message. So you'd have some side effects. So you, you can see that it actually works. And then your PyTest will do some polling with a timeout and make sure that the end message gets to the SQS that you wanted and the message looks like what you expect it to look like. It's more... It's not fun to write such code, but I think that's the best way to really see it works end to end properly. Yeah, that's uh, that's what I do as well. And for async tests, that has the side effects that uh, um, uh, for things like uh, uh, one of the some, one one of the functions pushing something to Eventbridge, for example, and uh, triggering some other people's uh, um, code run. Uh, I tend I tend to use uh, ephemeral environment so that. Uh, now that doesn't happen. So I've got my own event bridge bus just for my stack. So for my the yeah. feature I'm working on, so nobody else is going to be listening to my um, 
Dynamo DB streams or mine, uh, Event Bridge exactly. Bus. That's how I kind of isolate um, the testing environments uh, rather than try to use the mocks and things like that. I, yeah, like the same as you, I like to hit the real thing, make sure that it actually works rather than just use the mocks. And, uh, you know, I've seen so many false positives because uh, you never actually test the core to DynamoDB or to EventBridge or to whatever service. You're hitting yeah. a mock and you're telling the mock to say, okay, everything's good, but it's not because you've got a syntax <laughs> error or something in your yeah. code. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, okay, so now for the part you're not gonna, uh, maybe not agree. So, um, and there's another layer, I call it the security tests, and it runs before the integration, before the deployment part. And this is where I synthesize my CDK into a CloudFormation template, and I can run all sorts of uh, tests around it. I use usually CDK NAG to make sure that uh, I got everything covered. Uh, it basically looks for misconfigured buckets, like open buckets, or maybe you're you have an overly privileged role, or you misconfigured. You're not using you can. I think you can define your custom rules uh, across the organization and share that, and then you can enforce like a security approach uh, in CDK NAG. We obviously have other tools, but it's you know it's a very easy tool to you know, implement. So why not? Um, you can see an example for that in the uh, my AWS Lambda Handler Cookbook template. So uh, I see that you're nodding. So I think that you're you're okay with that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you don't do CDK, you know, you don't use the things like CDK NAG, you, you end up using something like a, a cloud custodian or other things uh, or um, config. Yeah, yeah, yeah. something to, to 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 validate, make sure that you are following. Um, best practices when it comes to uh, how you configure your resources. Either you do that before deploy or you do that post deploy. So it's something that you, sh you, know, you should be doing uh, regardless. Yeah, yeah you, I think you shouldn't do it post deploy because then, um, well, it's too late. You have the security breach <laughs> potentially. So yeah. yeah, but well, I mean the post deploy is in the, uh, in your like a lower environment, not in production. <laughs> ah, okay, got it. Okay, got it, sure. Um, that makes sense. Okay, so another test that, uh, now this is this is because it happened, right? It happened to us, uh, so that's why we did it. Um, we have tests for making sure that um, some resources exist and sometimes that they have not changed their logical ID. And the reason I'm saying that is CDK, you can write code. Code can raise exceptions. Now, we had an, in, an issue where somebody wrote try accept in the CDK code and they caught the exception. I have no idea why, but it's code and you can do it. So CDK raised an exception, some error that it had during the deployment and some validation, whatever. And the exception was ignored and it continued on and synthesized the, the CloudFormation template. And eventually what happened is that the critical resource was missing in our deployment. Which is not good because then you're gonna and you're gonna um, potentially find out that um, when you have your tests, right, or when a customer um, tries to access the code that uses the resources, that resource. So that's not ideal. And also, if if some in other cases you have, if you move around resources from one construct to another, you're potentially changing their logical ID. 
And some developers are not really aware of that. That's very dangerous, especially when you're dealing with stateful resources like DownloadDB tables and things like that. So what will happen is that the table will get deleted, the original table will get deleted and reconstructed again. But this time it will be empty without all your precious data, which is not great. <laughs> so um, these are kind of things that you should, I think, write uh, a very specific pre-deployment CDK unit task. Make sure that these stateful items exist and they're, that their logical IDs do not change. And that's one option. Another option, if you don't want to write these code, you don't want to write these tests, is to, to use uh, third-party tools like CDK diff. CDK diff, you can add it to your CICD pipeline and it visualizes uh, the changes that your CDK code in that PR are going to make. So you're going to see, I'm going to delete the table and I'm going to build the new table. Now, it's not blocking the, the pull request, but it gives you visualiz visualization so the code reviewer can understand if there's a potential risk in the pull, in the pull request or not. So I think these are the two approaches. So you can either do the, I want to protect my code 100% and do the tests, or I'm going to do the best effort and depend that my engineers are going to notice that and use CDK diff. Yeah, I'm not, I guess I don't agree with uh, that being the only two choices. Um, I mean, one of the things that uh, you mentioned there was uh, if the uh, uh, a stateful resource was missing, um, you know, the only time when the customer, uh, you know, you find out is when the customer actually uses that. Um, that tells me that you're, you've got a big gap in your end-to-end -end testing, um, that your end-to-end -end test or, you know, or other tests before that should have picked it up, uh, especially if you're using remote code testing, uh, because, you know, your local code be hitting those resources, uh, presumably. Um, the other thing I guess uh, um, that you mentioned was the was uh, the logical ID changing. Um, so I guess uh, I'm not hundred percent sure uh, how you protect against that uh, um, in in, your, in the example you gave because you were moving stuff around from different stacks. Um, so you know the the thing you that can uh, assert, you you can assert that the logical ID is a, a constant that oh, okay. you put in the code uh, and. And you make sure that it doesn't change because you can override the, the logical ID if you really want for the resources the first time they're created. Right. And then you have a constant. Okay, but I thought you said that you are moving them between different stacks. Oh, is that not the... No, not stacks, constructs. Oh, uh, construct. Okay, construct. Constructs, okay, yeah. okay. sorry, missed that. Yeah, um, yeah so in that case, uh, you can also just... You can, can, can you not use uh, things like the deletion policy to make sure that uh, if that does kind of happen and people accidentally... Um, you know, change the something because it's not just the logical ID, but it's also other things that it, that causes CloudFormation to do a replacement. So DynamDB, for example, if you accidentally change the, I think this, uh, any of the schema um, uh, um, uh, configuration, it would uh, you do a replacement. So you can also use uh, the um, deletion policy to make sure that if that does happen, <laughs> uh, you know, mm -hmm. you're not gonna just uh, lose all of your existing data because- yeah. uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, you have retained policies, you have backups in DynamoDB, and we actually use the backup for that case. But even if you have the, the retained, the the application is still using, and, and the environment, if you pass the environment variable to the Lambda, it's still going to use the new DynamoDB table. I mean, your data is not going to get lost, which is great, but your application is still not going to access the old data. So that's not great. And I totally agree with what you said about cloud coverage. I think 
in an ideal world, yeah, you're going to have perfect tests and perfect code coverage, and that's not going to happen. But reality is that teams are not doing 100% coverage. And even if you have 100% coverage, it doesn't mean that you cover the 100% business use cases for coverages. So, I mean, code coverage and business use cases are not always the same. And you have feature flags sometimes and that really makes it even more difficult. So, so yeah, it, it's not ideal. I do have another idea. Um, we do use another option that really helps to um, uh, minimize the, the impact of such uh, failures is uh, we use code deploy. And when you have, we use Canary deployments for Lambda functions. So in those, in those lambdas, you can in with code deploy, you can define tests and really simulate whatever you want to simulate. And then if the lambda uses that resource, if it's missing, it's gonna fail, you're gonna get a rollback. So that's great. So that's one approach, but it has its limits and it really depends on again, you're not gonna do like a complete full-blown test there. Oh, but I think are more sanity tests because it's really complicated to write those tests. But again, it's like another layer of protection that you can add. Yeah, but then if you can't trust your developers to write the good uh, tests and uh, have a decent coverage for your normal application code, then you're going to really struggle to get them to write those kind of uh, tests uh, that you run as part of a code deploy because it's, like I say, it's even harder to run those uh, uh, as part of deployment. And with code deploy, I also find that uh, is it, you know when it comes to isolating the errors. Um, uh, as far as I know, when you have a, a, a list, that's what I tried last time when I tried to use uh, code deploy. Um, the 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 metrics are not execute when using the lambda weighted alias. As assuming uh, the metrics are not going mm -hmm. to the exact version, the metrics are going to the the, the alias. So you can't tell if the, you know, when using the alias uh, to say split the traffic like ten and ninety percent to two different versions if you see an error you can't tell if it's coming from the new version or the old version oh okay that is that, 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 that that's what i observed uh, when i tried to use a uh, code deploy um with the lambda weighted alias before i don't know if they changed it um because they only record one dimension as far as i know um to the uh, when you're hitting the uh, when you're invoking a function uh to um via an alias um so I find so, so I found that, that okay you can observe that there's like an increase or like a difference in terms of error percentage, but you can't quite isolate it to the the, the version that you're looking for. I don't know. <laughs> to be honest, I haven't dug that deep into uh, into Codeflow. Um, I guess we didn't have a use case where it failed on the original, but it, usually when it failed, it failed on on the new one. Like, yeah, I, like you yeah, have, that makes like sense. you have pre, you have pre and post. So usually on the pre part, it would fail. Um, yeah, but that's an interesting. I, I need to check that. So thanks for that. Yeah. So so uh, so it wasn't code deploy. It was more just the lambda uh, weighted alias and how you report metrics uh, when it's invoked against the alias. Um, at least when I was, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was trying to do this before with, uh, you know, with previous jobs. Uh, uh, okay, I was trying to find out. Okay, got an error there. Was it the new version or the new, the old version? But I found okay, I only get one metric, and it was the, it was the, it was the dimension was the alias uh, rather than the version, the uh, individual versions. And it was the okay. same I think with the, 
the logs as well. The logs, uh, uh, the, 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 the log stream shows you the, the mm-hmm. various alias or version number. When you are using an, uh, a weighted alias, the log stream also just shows the, the, uh, the, the alias name rather than the specific version that was invoked. At least that was the, that, that was at the time. I don't know if they've uh, changed that. Um, it might be something that I have to go back and uh, and double check. Uh, but at the time, that's one one of the things I thought. Okay, that's gonna be tricky for me to uh, to, to figure out uh, which uh, which error, well, which version the error occurred on. But like I said, if you can do, you can isolate that with a prefer, a pre and and post. Then maybe that's an easier way to yeah. identify those. Um, but I guess it depends on how long your that you're, you know how long you're gonna keep an eye on that deployment, and uh, you know with how likely that the, those errors happen. Whether it's uh, happen straight away, uh, they can catch in the pre, or does it happen, you know, one every you know, thousand invocations, so that uh, you yeah. probably don't see until much later. Um, and so I guess uh, like CDK testing, are you? Uh, sounds like you still mostly testing your logic, um, or do you do like snapshot uh, snapshot testing as well? I think that's something that uh, Matthew Bonick and a few other people have told me that they, you know, they do quite religiously, just in case something happens, um, like there's a breaking change in the CDK. I think Matthew uses the TypeScript the CDK. Uh, so, and there was like a version two point eight, I think eighty or something like that. That was like yeah. a small uh, breaking change, uh, but it's not a major version incre- increment. So mm-hmm. he caught that uh, when uh, via his uh, snapshot testing. Is that something that you you also do as well, just in case uh, there's some you no know, changes in the CDK, uh, well package? No, I know, I, I no, I mean we test our, we check the, you know, we have the security test and we have the the, the logic end to end integration. And I I haven't encountered such a, a use case. Do you remember the use case? I mean, what? Yeah, the use case what was, was the more. Change? I think what the the, the the particular use case or particular error that they caught uh, was um, there was um, I think it was the ECS uh, cluster configuration. There was uh, one setting that was enabled by default before, and then yeah. uh, as uh, and after that version that that particular version update, um, it, it changed from enabled by default to disabled. So you have to explicitly opt in. And so, uh, and for their deployment, they rely on that setting being uh, um, being enabled, and they were counting on the default behavior. And so, they managed to catch that uh, that change uh, via the, the via the snapshot testing. They basically essentially do like a, a diff, uh, so that they see, okay, in this deployment, that setting has changed. And so, they uh, they you know, they managed to catch that the via that's the uh, snapshot testing. I think the the, the the rationale so, so- is. Sorry, go on. They had like a hidden assumption in the code, that's so to speak, right? Because they didn't specifically provide that parameter in the construct, but they just assumed that this is the default. That's okay for us. That that's basically what you're saying. Yeah, uh, they didn't assume it was a documented default uh, default value, uh, but uh, unfortunately, they changed uh, the CDK team changed that the default value from one version to another. Um, and I guess that they're not really strictly following semantic versioning uh, because yeah. that, that should have counted as a breaking a, change. Breaking yeah, change but change. Uh, they, you know, they they don't really follow semantic versionings uh, properly. So in that case, uh, they you know, they only did that as a, as a minor version update. 
Um, and so the last thing I want to ask about, uh, because you mentioned that you have uh, like a custom SDK that makes developers uh, uh, life easier when it comes to doing things like a tenant isolation and things like that. Um, can yeah. I, I want to just dive into that a little bit more and understand, uh, you know, what are some of the things that SDK gives you and how do you, you know, get tenant isolation in that case uh, from using the SDK? Okay, so the idea is basically um, to help the developers access resources of tenants. Usually, we usually advocate for for pool for the pool um, model for for tenants. So in DynamoDB, it would be one table for all tenants, and people can make mistakes. They can you you. In our lambdas, you always have the context of one tenant, but maybe you have a bug, maybe the lambda was warm and the context of the previous tenant was still active for some reason in the cache, whatever, and you use the previous tenant ID. Not good. You break tenant isolation. So we wanted to make sure that everybody uses the same library, that nobody needs to reinvent the wheel. It's used across the company. It's like very highly audited, security-related SDK. And we wanted to make sure that the dev experience is very simple and transparent. So essentially, you have the tenant ID somewhere. Um, and the tenant needs to be identified. So usually at the beginning of the Lambda, you will have another SDK for token validation to, to identify the JOT token of the tenant and extract the tenant ID, make sure that everything is OK. And what it does, it sets the tenant ID on the tenant isolation SDK. So now we know for sure this is the tenant ID for our session, for our context of the Lambda run. Now when they they do whatever they need to do in the Lambda, in the logic layer, whatever, at some point they need to access resources in DynamoDB or whatever service they need, right? We support for multiple services in AWS. For each service, we did a different magic, I call it. But basically, I mean, it's not magic. I mean, we're using it, uh, we're, we're, we based it on a AWS articles, like proper IAM. We're not doing anything weird or custom, just wrapping some mechanisms around IAM. So the idea is that the Lambda by itself, its role doesn't, it cannot access the database of the tenants. Nothing, it cannot do anything. The only way it can, I mean, ideally, if the developers, they follow the rules and they use the SDK, because obviously I can't force them. But if they do that, um, the only way for them to get a bottle client or a bottle table or a bottle resource to get to the table is to use the SDK. And the SDK, is, SDK requires basically a role that it needs to assume. And the role can be, the role can do whatever that Lambda needs to do for the table, it has no restrictions. So if it needs to get items, it can get all the items. If it needs to put the items, it can put any item to the table. Now for this to work, the primary key of the DynamoDB table needs to be some sort of tenant ID. It needs to be somewhere in there, like a prefix, suffix, whatever, but it needs to be there. And then the way it works, the SDK does assume role assumes the role and injects an inline pol dynamic policy and inserts the, uh, and we use the role level mechanism of DynamoDB for the leading keys, if you're familiar with it. And we inject the tenant ID into there. 
And we know the tenant ID because it was initialized at the beginning of the context. And that way, you get a client. We return you back a client with the with those credentials that we get for the assume role. And that way, even if you try to get an item and put in the tenant ID, a tenant ID that is not the current tenant ID, you're going to get an exception not from my SDK, but from IAM, from Boto, like in the client error. So it's very transparent and, and very simple. That, that's the main idea. And for each different service, we did a different inline policy that will match whatever we need to do. So basically, okay. that's it. That's the magic. Yeah, that makes sense. Because uh, in that case, uh, because the, I, the the Lambda function's own IAM role doesn't have those permissions to access those tables and data, then you can also protect, make sure that uh, someone can't just forgot or someone don't realize that that's how you access data in the cyber arc and you know, suddenly trying to, you know, you've got a, a function that has access to lots more things. But uh, if you restrict everything through the, the SDK, then the, you have this basically this access pattern uh, baked into how your code has to... Um, has to behave uh, in order to get access to your your your, your, your tenants' data. That makes yeah. a lot of sense, and I think that's something that we actually talked about uh, back when I was doing some work with the CyberArk team. Uh, it's good to see that it's all in place now, and also you've got this yeah. whole library I, I, built around it. I don't know if you remember, if you remember, but I actually wrote that uh, SDK, and I actually consulted with you back in the day. Okay. Yeah, like <laughs> I don't remember that was quite a few years, years ago. ago. Yeah, almost four years ago. So it's really <laughs> it's really serial to be talking with you now on your on your podcast. <laughs> it's funny it's how things comes around. Uh, that's great yeah. to hear that uh, things has been uh, working really well for the last uh, four years. Uh, so you know, well done. Um, I think that's the, all the questions that I've got. Uh, uh, I have in mind. Uh, is there anything else that you like to sort of mention? I guess uh, is CyberArk hiring people because uh, that's one thing that uh, I hear from a lot of uh, you know, the, my readers and uh, an audience that you know they're, they're looking for jobs where they can do serverless uh, uh, full time. Yeah, yeah, uh, we do hire. You can go to CyberArk. I think it's slash careers okay. and look for. Uh, we have worldwide offices, but we also recruit in Israel. That's where I'm from. And you can check out my, my website, Run the Builder, where I talk about all these things. Um, I think that's it pretty much. Okay, cool. I will put the link to the careers page um, in the description below. It's uh, careers.cyberarc.com. Um, so yeah, CyberArc team is, a, is you know, it's got a really good team and they're doing, you know, they're doing everything fully serverless. So if that's uh, something that you're looking for, uh, definitely check them out. Uh, and uh, I can personally uh, vouch that uh, Ren has got some really good uh, articles there on the Ren the Builder as well. And so yeah, thank you very much, uh, Ren, for coming to the, for coming on the show today and to talk about and sharing your experience with um at the uh, CyberArk and uh, doing CDK stuff. See, we didn't differ too much in terms of how yeah, we yeah, think yeah. about yeah, testing. I think, I think we're on the same page here. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's good to know. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been a pleasure and I hope to see you in person some uh, sometime at the reInvent, hopefully. Yeah, we will. Yeah, good. I had a lot of fun. So thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.